Welcome. This is the podcast from First Baptist Church, Madison, North Carolina, and I am in one of our Sunday school rooms here on a Wednesday morning as I'm uh, working to prepare for the final message in a series that is entitled The Resurrection and Revelation. This is the fifth and final sermon that I've preached on this, and you should know that uh, one of the dynamics of preaching is that sometimes you lean more toward the teaching element uh, than the actual inspirational message that may come forth. That's completely natural. Uh, this has been one of those that I have had to do some teaching. Uh, because of the nature of the study, but I didn't want to uh, neglect this wonderful book of the Bible because it has so much to say to us about our resurrection hope. So um, with that in mind, uh, I'd like to share with you uh, the passage that is our final passage that uh, I'm using this day to talk to you about, uh, about this. This uh, a number of uh, references here. They're all from the final part of the book of Revelation. Oh, I guess I should say this is Dr. Chuck McGathy, uh, in case you have not listened to this podcast before. And this is the fifth of a series of sermons, so you can actually go back in your podcast uh, library there from First Baptist Church. This passage comes from Revelation 22, 12 through 14, verses 16 and 17, and verses 20 through 21. And the uh, reason for that is because of the emphasis on that, uh, but you'll make that'll make more sense to you as we go along. Now, today, um, this particular year, I've uh, wanted to speak using the passages from the final book of the Bible. And to be honest, that has been a challenging and honestly a rewarding task for me. It is challenging because there is far too much confusion about this unique book of the New Testament, some of which must be addressed before we can understand the intended meaning of the scripture. I hope that I can conclude this series on the resurrection and revelation by showing you how the matter got so confused. Sometimes just knowing a bit of the historical development can be reassuring, even inspiring. I hope you have learned from this series of messages Revelation is a book of the Bible that does not have to be contentious or too mystical to comprehend or even scary. This is a message of hope. I invite you to hear the entire teaching. If you have not done so already, you can easily access this by going to our podcast, which can be found on our website. The address is so easy. It's www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com. I also hope that the same great hope that got the first Christians through their tribulation and distress will also get us through our 
tribulations and distresses. Jesus is coming again. But until he comes, we can have great faith and endurance. We can count on it because of one constant and consistent theme. The resurrection is echoed again and again throughout the book of Revelation. Here, once again, the words that gave them hope. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Why is it that this book of Revelation is so controversial? Some of what is said and taught about it is has been confusing, wildly speculative, and even divisive. Sometimes this book is taught in such a way among God's children so that it has a dangerous element to it. Revelation has been the playground for charlatans, lunatics, and the mentally unstable. In fact, it has been so problematic that our country, in our country, that I don't know too many reasonably educated and ethical Christian preachers who will even dare try to preach a sermon on it. They may, if goaded a bit, teach on it, but whenever they do, they should be prepared to encounter those who will disagree, and perhaps some folks who will stir some trouble, claiming their pastor just doesn't understand. I believe we can do better than that. We can think together, and we can all learn. I also feel I can help clear up some of the confusion. In the sermons I have been preaching, I think you will find it interesting to learn why we have had so much difficulty understanding the powerful message of this book of the Bible. I also hope I can show you why reading this book of apocalyptic literature, which is in fact what it is, will make it a useful and accessible book that you can approach with comprehension and confidence. To do, to do this, we need to go back to the beginning, when the Church of Jesus Christ first received the revelation of John into their Christian experience. Remember what I said about their world? It was a melange of misfortune, tribulation, and distress. Their world was a world at war. A war that was really three consecutive wars bent on a singular objective, the genocidal destruction of the Jewish people, the destruction of their nation, and the utter eradication of Judaism. Remember also that Christianity is a form of Judaism and as such was not immune from the danger of Roman wrath. Their world was also racked by the twin children of war, namely famine and disease. Refugees escaping violence pressured the populations of cities across the Mediterranean. The established residents resented the new arrivals. Hunger was a constant issue, but the movements of people also brought plagues that swept through the Romanized towns with devastating consequences. 
When a horrific natural disaster struck, not far from the center of the Roman Empire, the entire world took notice. Perhaps as many as 100,000 Romans were killed in a matter of hours when the towns built around Mount Vesuvius were buried following the explosion. The volcano, it was thought, was the wrath of God falling on the destroyers of the temple in Jerusalem. The Romans, though, were more than just a devastating army. They were also a governmental system rife with corruption. Starting at the top, the Roman Emperor Nero and his successors found the Christians to be an easy target. On the night of July 19th in 64 AD, a devastating fire swept through the city of Rome. The emperor used the upset and fear of the Romans to redirect it to anger and revenge. The new Jewish sect known as Christians were blamed. Yes, it was hate-filled bigotry used to control the ignorant and fearful, but it was also highly effective politically. In every persecution, there are always those who will betray their friends to save their own skin. And while this is not surprising, it is always devastating. The Christians were not immune from betrayers. How hurtful it was for them to endure the wounds of the unfaithful among them. All of these things conspired together to conjure up the poisonous brew, a cup everyone had to drink. It was distress. It was tribulation. It was, in many ways, the worst of times. But it was also the best of times. It was a time for hope because the followers of Jesus had an enduring promise of hope. They believed he would return. Christ would return in victory, in redemption of his people, and in justice. Jesus would usher in the kingdom of God. The early believers expressed all the time to one another this hope. One of the ways they did that was using a form of literature that used symbolic imagery and numbers to paint a fantastic picture of the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. It was meant more poetically than actually. The point was, in the end, God wins. This form of expression is called apocalyptic, and it flourished for just a few centuries. By the early part of the second century, it had all but vanished. Of all of the New Testament books, only Revelation is predominantly written in apocalyptic style. It was no doubt popular and properly understood by the first century believers. But as the writing and reading of apocalyptic faded into obscurity, so too did the meaningfulness of the message of Revelation. With each generation of Christians, it got more and more difficult to decipher the language of apocalypse and make sense of it. That, however, did not mean that biblical interpreters did not try. Now, those symbolic numbers that held so much meaning for the original audience took on new meanings. A thousand years, which in apocalyptic terms simply meant just the right amount of time, now became 1,000 literal years on a Roman calendar. Because of this interpretive mistake, leaders like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus began to teach that Jesus must return soon, and after he returned, he would establish an earthly kingdom that would last for 1,000 years. This perspective came to be known as premillennialism. 
As time passed and the Lord did not return, premillennialism gave way to another idea. Perhaps they thought Jesus would return after a thousand years. This view is called postmillennialism. You may have heard of these terms, pre- and post-millennialism. Well, that is how they originated, and both are based on mistaken reading of apocalyptic writing. The story, however, goes on, Dr. Efert explains. When 1,000 years came and went, as did 1,100 and then 1,200, most settled down into a completely symbolic understanding of this time reference. They believed that Christ was reigning in the church, in the world, and would do so until the time came for Jesus' return and the finalizing of all things. The millennium was in process. This view has come to be known as millennial. This idea was a great improvement on the understanding of the Apocalypse of John, but once again, it centered around the 1,000 years and the meaning of it. By this time in church history, the nature of apocalyptic writing was all but lost. Even so, Christians could still use the book of Revelation because its great themes of resurrection and ultimate justice and the return of Christ were uncompromised. But as a foretelling of the future, a purpose for which it was not intended, it was inadequate. Then an interesting thing happened. During the Protestant Reformation, some approaches to Revelation were modified. Frankly, these were a bit self-serving and were used in a hostile way toward the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church became the beast, and the Pope was identified as the harlot of Revelation. In response, Roman Catholic interpreters, to their great credit, tried to point out that it was important to try and understand what the book meant in its original historical setting and meaning. But since the understanding of apocalyptic literature was mostly lost, this was a greatly complicated task. The struggle to interpret Revelation continued, and then about the end of the 18th century, something started happening that gave us the key to the ancient understanding. The study of Scripture using critical investigation and historical research began to develop. If you ever wander into our libraries, or my office for that matter, you might notice a number of books devoted to the exposition of Scripture, exposing the biblical backgrounds, Middle Eastern culture and traditions, and the original language of the text. All of these are an outgrowth of what is called higher textual criticism. I should add that it is still common to hear some poorly informed preachers condemn this kind of intensive study of the Bible. But the truth is, all of our preaching today is better informed because of the emergence of serious scholarship that is enabled mostly by the invention of the printing press. So this gift of God to the Christian community, though not always welcomed, has helped by providing the key that can unlock the mystery of Revelation. With the mind to learn, scholars began the systematic exploration of the non-canonical texts that were apocalypses, and by cross-comparison with books like Revelation and Daniel began to see a clear commonality.
by the middle of the 20th century and the discovery of a treasure trove of apocalypses in Egypt, the interpreting of Revelation has been brought back to the first century. By reading it as an apocalyptic text, we can, if we try, better imagine the mindset of the first hearers of this hopeful book. Nevertheless, the Christian religion has many who, for one reason or another, continue to remain in a way of interpretation that does not take advantage of the historical origins of the text. I have spoken of the millennialisms of Catholic bashing and selective application. There is one more, though, that deserves attention, and that is dispensationalism. Now, if you have heard my previous sermons on this, then you know that this form of interpreting Revelation is both very popular today and a rather recent development. It began about 10 years before this church was founded, making it something of a new thing in the history of the Christian religion. John Nelson Darby, I mistakenly referred to him as Charles in an earlier sermon, was an Ang Irish Anglican priest. He left his church to join a small group called the Plymouth Brethren. Darby had certain ideas, and these ideas embody the heart of modern dispensationalism. For instance, Darby concluded that the entire history of God's dealing with the world is included in the Bible from creation until the end. Now, please stay with me if this is sounding too technical, but it is important, an important distinction. Most Christians and Jews, for most of time, have not understood the Bible that way. Instead, they see the Bible as a picture of God's interaction with his covenant people over a specific segment of time. That does not mean that God is not actively dealing with humanity outside of the time frame of the Bible, but we look to the written scriptures to give us light from their experiences. Darby also believed that the church was something of an afterthought on the part of God, or as he liked to call it, a parenthesis. According to Darby, the primary work of God was and is through the nation of Israel. That, however, just does not line up very well with the teaching of Jesus, the early church, or the historical church. Christianity, you see, is a form of Judaism. Christians do not see themselves as a replacement of anyone, but as the way of following Jesus as a people of the covenant between God and, the man, and man that began with Abraham. We have been grafted in, and now we are part of that great tree of the faithful who have fulfilled the promise given to the ancient patriarch of our faith. The church, then, is not an afterthought of God, but the fulfilling of his kingdom purpose. Darby, I believe, got that wrong, and because he got it wrong. There have been a great number of good and wonderful Christian brothers and sisters in our day who do not realize that their view of the end times is taking them away from historic Christian teaching. Now what I'm about to say next is the most important part of my message today. What I've shared with you today I know is a bit complicated. Much of this may even be brand new information. What is most important, though, is this. In the end, if we get the message that Jesus is coming again, 
And because of that, we can have hope and take courage for our lives, even in times of challenge and distress. If that is what we get from Revelation, then we have not done too bad. You see, God is on our side. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. How we understand the resurrection is the very core of our life in Christ. Is he the one who will always be there? Is he the one who is with us even in the valley of the shadow of death? Is he the one who we can count on in the end? Is Jesus to you the eternal Lord? I invite you this day to embrace him in your heart and mind. Let us pray. Alpha and Omega. We ask that we might be as your children of that early church did and believe that no matter what you love us and will see us through every calamity, every tribulation we face. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and so inspire faith in others. We lift one another up and ask your blessings on our friends, even those who see things differently than we do. We are, after all, God's children. We place our lives and dreams, our tomorrows and our todays, in your loving hands. Amen.